Well, it's moments like these that make you ask, how can you not be pedantic about baseball? If baseball were different, how different would it be? On the case with light ripping, all analytically, cross-check and compile, find a new understanding, not effectively, while that can you not be pedantic? Yes, when it comes to baseball, how can you not be pedantic? Hello and welcome to episode 1986 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Well, we've done it. This is our last team preview pod of 2023. We have completed the series, or by the end of this episode, we will have. <laughs> so I'm uh, relieved. I'm happy. I'm also glad that we did it again. Yeah, and certainly very appreciative of everyone who joined us to preview all of these teams. But yeah, it's a big undertaking, Ben. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, we time it with a time of year where there's just nothing else going on. So it's fine. Well, I know it's busy for you, what with prospect season and positional power ranking season. But that is usually the case on the baseball calendar, except this spring, there turned out to be a super exciting WBC. Anyway, we made time for it all. And we do have two more teams to go today. We will be talking to Grant McCauley about the Braves very shortly, followed by Danielle Allentuck about the Colorado Rockies, the best and worst projected teams according to the Fangraphs playoff odds page. The bang and the whimper. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then it'll be opening day very soon, later this week. Don't know if you've noticed. I think you have, but it's almost like we planned it that way so that we would complete previewing the season before the season started. Funny how that works out. So the Braves are projected with a, I suppose you could say modest 93.4 wins for a team that's on top there. That's a 57.3% chance to win the NL East competitive division, a 91% chance to make the playoffs. And then at the Rockies, just fractions of a win beneath the Nationals, 66.1, and also a 0.0% chance to win the division and a 0.2% chance to make the playoffs. So as always, we, our Fangraphs, are saying that there is a chance, but we will get into those two teams in just a moment. And I guess just we will quickly react to some of the opening day roster decisions that have been announced already, right? Some of that news is still trickling out, but we're getting announcements about prominent players and prospects who have or haven't made major league rosters. And Nothing more exciting, nothing that gets you more hyped for an opening day, I don't think, than a franchise player winning a job and making the opening day roster. That is just always a real charge, I think, that gets put into you at the start of a season. So this year, Yankees fans are enjoying that because Anthony Volpe has won the shortstop job in the Bronx. Jordan Walker making the opening day lineup for St. Louis. So that's exciting. Oscar Colas making the White Sox. Have I missed any other prominent promotions? As we were getting ready to record one of our segments today, Bryce Terang for right. Milwaukee is going to make the opening day roster. I think those are the the most prominent ones that I can think of, at least that we've gotten in the last couple of days. 
yeah, Volpe, I think, is uh, particularly exciting. I mean, Walker is maybe even more exciting just yeah. because of how incredible a spring he just had. Yeah. Volpe had a nice spring himself. But I think it would make me optimistic as a Yankees fan that they're not holding down Volpe for service time-related reasons and playing either Praza or IKF, right? And it kind of fluffle like we've seen that act, you know? And just to go for it and say, yeah, we're going to put the young player we think is actually actually the best who might make a difference in a tight division. And as we've covered, there's a little more incentive to promote the prospects on opening day because of the CBA and the chance to get a draft pick if you have a high rookie of the year finish. So there's some incentive there, but it's also nice just to see them go for it, especially when players make convincing cases like Volpe and Walker did during spring. Yeah. And there are teams that are not taking that approach. Brett Beatty's not making the Mets opening day roster. Grayson Rodriguez isn't making Baltimore's opening day roster. Mm-hmm. I know that parts of his spring have been kind of rough. It is interesting just because they got, and I know that the injury situation with Adley kind of complicated things for them in some ways, or at least makes this comp a little more cloudy. But it is interesting that an org that sort of got burned by not you know, acting on the incentives of the new CBA is potentially in position to do that again, right? Because mm-hmm. because of where Rutschman finished in Rookie of the Year voting, he got a full year of service time, even though he wasn't up right away. And he was obviously injured for part of that, but uh, it seemed like they took their time after the injury. And, you know, you can have a guy on your opening day roster and then send him back down if he's not playing well. So it's interesting that Baltimore is still kind of hewing to that approach. And then you know, the Beatty didn't make the Mets opening day roster and now they've DFA'd Darren Ruff. So mm-hmm. it's interesting. I think Mike Bowman's going to write about this for us at some point this week, trying to assess just how much of the current situation is really us being able to say, hey, the CBA is doing this versus particular teams yeah. um, having sort of a predilection for either promoting guys when they're ready. You know, it's it's not surprising to me that Jordan Walker, having had the spring he had, that the Cardinals are just, you know, having him on the opening day roster, they tend to not mess around with that stuff, right? We look at last year and, you know, the Royals had Bobby Wood Jr. on their roster and they tend to not mess around. So we've seen San Diego do this at times in the past. So there are teams that are just sort of doing what they normally do Mm -hmm. um, when presented with a good spring performance and then others where maybe, you know, there are idiosyncratic considerations that might push them in a particular year. Like I think Julio Rodriguez made a really strong case for himself last year, and the Mariners were surely aware how bad it would look for a team that hadn't been to the postseason in as long as they had to like hold a guy down just to game his service time. And then it didn't end up mattering because they signed him to a potentially incredibly lucrative extension. So it's mm-hmm. I think we're still in sort of data gathering mode in terms of how effective these incentives have been. But I'm sure that, you know, fans of the Cardinals and fans of the Brewers and fans of the Yankees certainly aren't really thinking about any of that. They're just super stoked to see their guys. So it's exciting for them. Yeah. Before spring training started, Michael Elias, GM of the Orioles, had said that he expected Rodriguez to make the opening day roster. And then Rodriguez went out and posted a 7 ERA in spring training. Now, he did strike out a lot of guys. He also walked a fair amount of guys and gave up some dingers. So I would think, I would hope that if he had put together a better spring performance, he would have made the team because you'd think that he might have made the team last year or should have if he had not gotten hurt. So I don't know what you read into 15 innings 
things, whether they were looking for an excuse not to promote him or whether they thought that actually was a cause for concern and needed him to pitch a little bit better coming off the injury to earn his place on that roster. But it was notable when he didn't guarantee that he would make the opening day roster, but strongly suggested that he would. So if Rodriguez had pitched better in spring training, then I think maybe Elias would have been bound by his words there. So whether they just used this spring performance as an out or whether they thought it was a legitimate cause for concern, I don't know, but a little disappointing. One would think that he'll be around sometime soon. Yeah, I would imagine so. And as for Walker, I remember Rob Maines at Baseball Prospectus. He wrote a piece a little while ago after the Pakota projections came out because Pakota has underestimated the Cardinals like nine years in a row. (laughs) And so (laughs) Rob was trying to figure out, is this just random or are the Cardinals doing something to defy the system and defy the projections? And the closest he could come to figuring out an answer was basically that their rookies have overperformed and that maybe also they've been particularly good and aggressive about not contenting themselves with replacement level or sub-replacement level performance. Like they will cycle in younger guys. If someone's not performing, they'll call someone up. Like they're never just going to let it ride basically at a position where they're not getting anything out of someone. And their farm system has been fertile enough that they have players like that that they can call up, right? And Jordan Walker has looked incredible. So (laughs) I don't know. Some people have said he's the rookie of the year favorite. I don't know whether you could put him above Corbin Carroll, for instance, because he's already been there doing it for a little while at the big league level. But they're probably neck and neck at this point. And man, Jordan Walker, I'm sure you've seen him in person, right? He is uh, a large human being. Yeah, it's funny to see the contrast between him and Mason Wynn also. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And and not like Mason Wynn is like, you know, so we, but, you know, relative to (laughs) to Jordan Walker, I think everyone looks pretty we. Mason Wynn also had a nice spring, not on the opening day roster, but he's getting pushed to AAA. So Mm -hmm. it's exciting stuff for the Cardinals, which is good because, you know, nothing ever goes well for that team. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right, sure. It's been a it's been a real struggle for those poor Cardinals fans over the past decade or two. <laughs> and also, I guess Esteori Ruiz made the A's roster. I guess that's not really a surprise. No, but that happened. <laughs> and uh, and also, Mark Vientos did not make the Mets roster. Similarly, like Beatty, I guess that's less surprising than Beatty not making it. He did hit the ball very hard in spring, as a recent Fangraphs post pointed out. But he also struck out a lot. He had like twenty one strikeouts and three walks in spring training, I think. So you can see in those cases why at least there's some alternative at the same position at the major league level, or there were enough question marks about the spring performance that you could have cause for concern, or at least say that you have cause for concern and have it be somewhat defensible. Anyway, hopefully we'll see a bunch of those guys soon. I don't think we'll see as many prospect promotions and first-time call-ups and debuts this year as last year, which was a record, as I've noted, because there just aren't as many top prospects who are close to the majors and poised to make those debuts. But if I wasn't excited enough for opening day, which I was, then just the prospect of getting to see a Volpe or a Walker always adds some extra juice. So well done to them and to their teams for giving them the shot. Yeah. Ben, I told you as we were preparing to record that I had to keep the banter light today because I got got a lot to do with the positional power rankings. Mm -hmm. But I'm going to spring a question on you. Ooh, okay. you know, we talked about Brian Cranston last time, and yeah. I don't feel like we were unfair to that commercial. But have you uh, have you seen the the more player focused ones they've been <laughs> doing breaking down the rules? Yes, there's uh, quite a selection of them. I gotta say, 
they're really quite good. You yeah. know? Like, mm-hmm. um, I do find it kind of confounding that the one about the defensive shift features both Blake Snell, famously a San Diego Padre, and Tim Anderson, famously a White Sox. White <laughs> Sox. I'm never going to get that right. No. So why didn't you have one of their... They famously just replete with infielders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Could have put... Could have put one of Blake Snell's actual infielders back there, you know? Mm-hmm. They True. could have done that, but they didn't. But anyway, Tim Anderson's very charming, so maybe that was just the calculus. They're like, you know what? Tim Anderson, charming guy. Yeah. Um, these are these are good, and I have to say that my favorite one of them is um, Vogelback and Buck yeah, Walter. I think everyone's the... favorite is Vogelback. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just, um, you know, sometimes when um, the game doesn't take itself too seriously, it produces stuff that's fun to watch. So, you mm-hmm. know, this is further evidence of that, I think. Yeah. These new bases are wider than the old ones. Is he focused on the size of the new bases? Now it will be easier to steal second base. Is he thinking about stealing second base? Seven years in the league. And he's never stolen a single base. Don't steal second base. The pitcher's not looking. I am not looking. We got bigger bases this year, but a smaller Vogelback. So you'd think the combination of those two things, <laughs> he might actually get that swipe. I'm rooting oh, for him. I'd be so thrilled for him if he, he got one. But do you think even if he were successful that he would maybe get yelled at in the dugout a little bit? <laughs> maybe. Although, really, now that it's been the subject of an ad, can you really hold it against him? Yeah. I mean, MLB has endorsed the message that Daniel Vogelbach might try to steal a base this year. So Yeah, there you go. We'll link to where you can find all those spots. And yeah, I, I have seen some people sort of uh, making fun of the idea that MLB is basing a whole marketing campaign around rules being different about sort of maybe sending the message that uh, baseball wasn't so great before, but now it's great. You should watch now. I mean, I think it's good. You know, I think with any player centric campaign, you're not going to have the most natural line deliveries in every case. You're not going to get a a Brian Cranston quality line read out of every major league player. <laughs> That's a, a pretty high bar. So I think it's good. I think, yeah, you got to familiarize your fans with the way the sport works now. It's different. There are different rules. You got to tell people about the different rules. And also, if you're excited about what the effects of them will be, then crow about it. Why not? The people who think it's silly for them to have embarked on an ad campaign around this stuff have never written an intro to the positional power <laughs> rankings where you caveat all of the ways in which you should not yell at fangrass writers and then proceed to watch them get yelled at anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. So at the end of the episode, we'll have blasts and a trivia answer. And just to, to tease the trivia questions, this is the last time we will do this because it's our last preview pod of the year. So the questions three, as always, this is a themed bit of trivia about the two teams we are previewing today, the Braves and the Rockies. So I want you to tell me, not you, but the listener, the head-to-head record. I mean, you don't have to name exactly what the head-to-head record is, but which team has a better head-to-head record against the other, the Braves or the Rockies? And then who are the highest war hitter and pitcher to have played for both the Braves and the Rockies and the first hitter and pitcher to have played for both the Braves and the Rockies? Answers coming up at the end of the episode. And right now, we will talk about those Atlanta Braves with Grant McCauley. All right, it is time to talk about the team that Fangrass projects to be the winningest, if that is a word, in 2023, the Atlanta Braves. And to do that, 
we are rejoined by Grant McCauley, who covers the Braves. Well, where doesn't he cover the Braves these days? He is the Braves reporter at 92.9 The Game. You can hear his show From the Diamond there. You can also get it in podcast form. He also writes there at FromTheDiamond.com. He's on Battery Power, the SB Nation Braves blog. He's on Locked On Sports Atlanta. He's on 11 Alive Sports. So if you're anywhere in the Atlanta area or anywhere in the world, for that matter, you can probably catch Grit talking about the Braves some where including with us right now. Hello, Grant. Hello, Ben. Meg, great to talk to you guys again. It's been just a hot minute, and yeah, I've got a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it's a mini empire yet, but I just wanted people to know, if they want to talk about the Braves, that I am here to do that. So if you're thinking about the Braves and want to talk about them, I've got all the outlets. Well, it's good times to talk about a good team. So... This is largely the same Atlanta roster as last year, which is not a bad thing because that was a really good Braves team, too. So I guess we should start out maybe by talking about the one big addition and the one big departure. We can do the addition first. So the Braves had among the most productive catching tandems in baseball last year. I think they were third in war, but that was not enough for them. They went out and got the best catcher available, Sean Murphy. So what drove them to upgrade over an R? already strong catching core and why did they give up the guys they did to get him and then how did they extend him immediately which I guess is kind of a question about how they extend everyone but (laughs) he wasn't a homegrown Atlanta guy I guess neither was Matt Olson but it seems like once you are in the Braves organization even if you haven't actually put the uniform on yet you want to stay there forever so take us through the Sean Murphy trade and extension. Yeah absolutely I think that really if there was one focus on what the Braves catching tandem can do, not just for 2023, but into the future and with some of the rules changes and perhaps the rise in stolen base numbers and just all of the things that we're all going to get used to here in 2023 and beyond. Sean Murphy checked so many boxes from that defensive component and from handling a pitching staff. And then I think just getting out of the Oakland Coliseum, where if you go look at those splits, he did not have very much fun hitting there, going over to a place like Truist Park and being in the kind of lineup he's going to be. And I think you'll see the uptick there. There was just so much about him as a complete package that I think that the Braves, even though they didn't have the definite need of catcher if you were making their offseason shopping list, they just had a chance to upgrade. And if you're going to give up the kind of talent, as you were talking about, multiple prospects, pitching prospects, the three-team trade in which William Contreras, who was a very good catcher for the Braves last year, also found himself dealt off. He ended up in Milwaukee. Uh, But if you're going to give up those kind of assets and and cash in those chips, if you will, you want that investment to stick around for a while. So Sean Murphy became the latest, I believe, the seventh Braves player to sign an an extension and is going to be hanging around for the rest of this decade. So uh, roster construction wise, Sean Murphy, it just seems like the exact kind of player that you'd want to have behind the plate to help lead your team, lead your pitching staff. And I think that's really what attracted the Braves to him. And and maybe if a lot of other clubs had kind of thought he's available, which he's an Oakland athletic, at some point he's always going to be available. Maybe more calls. Maybe there would have been more of a feeding frenzy. I don't know. But it definitely surprised me. I was not expecting a trade for a catcher. But if you're going to go get one, again, it's Sean Murphy just really seems to be the kind of fit that the Braves would like to have, not just for this season, but obviously for the next, what, seven years. Ben alluded to the major departure of this roster. And I'm curious about two things. First, we should talk about whether Atlanta was ever really in play to retain Dansby Swanson. Did they see that as a priority? And then I'm curious about how their competition has shook out because I think coming into spring training, we all expected Von Grissom to really seize that role 
uh, Braden Shoemake kind of made it a competition. They both ended up being optioned to the minors last week, and Orlando Arcia is slated to be their starting shortstop, at least for now. So let's start with Swanson and then talk about kind of what the future of that position looks like in Atlanta. Yeah, I think that the future is still very much a Vaughn Grissom discussion. I think Braden Shoemake showed a lot this spring, and it's kind of not a make-or-break year for him, but as a college draftee who was a first-round pick, I believe he had a $3 million or so bonus, and when a club gives that kind of money to a first-round pick, typically they're going to have the opportunity to find their way to the major leagues, but he had kind of stalled out offensively in the minors, but the glove, the Braves always liked that. Then he got to AAA last year hurt his knee, and because of that, the Braves went down to double-A when they needed help with Ozzie Albies on the shelf and with Orlando Arcia feared to be out for a, quite a while. Fortunately, he wasn't. Vaughn Grissom kind of got an unexpected call-up last year, and I would say, by and large, it's one of the youngest players in the big leagues. He really made a very good impression. He did trail off at the end of the year, but I think there's still enough there for a 22-year-old player offensively to have a place for the Braves or with the Braves and shortstop seems to be that place, at least for now. He put in a lot of work over the offseason, and that's kind of, I think, where a lot of that narrative, I guess, was built, that if you're going to lose Dansby Swanson, who's the heir apparent? Well, it's Vaughn Grissom. He's going to go work with Ron Washington. He's going to come to spring training. He's going to win the competition, and he's going to grow at the big league level. That was how I had laid it out, at least in, in my mind. And he didn't really do anything this spring to lose the job, so I thought that was kind of interesting. But all of this obviously was in place because of the departure of Dansby Swanson. To answer the question about were the Braves in it, at, at any point, I think that they were, but I think that the Braves and Alex Anthopoulos, especially with guys that get this close to free agency, and it was kind of a lesson we learned with Freddie Freeman, they're going to have a certain valuation of what they view that player as and how it fits with the rest of their payroll, which has been expanding or, or growing quite a bit into the top 10 and perhaps even creeping into the top five at different points this winter. But I don't think that they were ever in it at the level that the Chicago Cubs were. And even if Dansby Swanson was willing to take say the Javi Baez deal, which was, I believe, six years of 140, which was kind of where I thought that he would be looking for at the high end, that was still going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 30, maybe $40 million more than the Braves were ever really going to offer and an extra year on top of that. So I think five and 100 was about where the Braves were with it. And once it got beyond that, and we saw what the shortstop market was this winter, good for Dansby Swanson to get the biggest deal that he could. And for the Braves, they just kind of held that line of, okay, we're going we're gonna to put a value on our players. And we're going to find the ways to get the most value that we can out of our roster. But they haven't really played as much in that free agency, you know, sandbox, if you will, based on all the extensions that they've done and kind of the one year model of bringing in players that complement the core that they have. So I think that's how the Dansby Swanson sweepstakes went from Atlanta possibly holding a ticket for it, maybe the winning ticket to all of a sudden he's a Chicago Cub. So I think those, to make a long story short, are kind of the, the overriding you know, storylines with it. And then Orlando Arcia was just a guy that, to put it you know briefly, they liked the changes that he made once they kind of picked him up off the scrap heap from the Brewers. I thought that he played really well in spurts last year. They're going to give him the opportunity with the experience, let Vaughn Grissom, let Braden Shoemake grow a little bit at AAA. But I do think that they could reassess this situation basically at any time this year. And nothing is set in stone with that. Swanson was drafted by the Diamondbacks, but he spent his whole big league career and almost all of his professional career in the Braves organization. Any idea why he didn't join the extension conga line? Was he more resistant to the idea than others were? Or were the Braves less aggressive about getting him signed than they were with other guys? I kind of wonder that sometimes because as you look at Dansby Swanson's growth as a big league player and even in his career year of 2022, 
he always seems to have those highs and lows. It's a bit of a roller coaster with him at times, at least offensively speaking. I think the defensive side and the teammate fit and the leadership component, which I don't know how you quantify it and put a, a monetary value on it, but clearly, you know, clubs find it from different places. And I do think the Braves are still okay in that regard. It's, I, I think that once he got into the arbitration years, and especially a year or even two years away from free agency, maybe the, the economic question mark that the pandemic threw at teams, at least briefly, might have upset the the natural timing of what could have been maybe in 2020 or before 21, an extension for Dansby Swanson. But I haven't really gotten any real clarification. That's just kind of my theory on it. A lot of things may have just kind of come together to keep the sides just far enough apart that they weren't able to find a good middle ground. But going into 2022, before he put up what was a career year for him, before he really did some big things to carry this team yet again, because he always seemed to have a penchant for big hits, and won that gold glove, which, you know, I, I think that the, the metrics also bear it out. He's a really good defensive shortstop. I was feeling like somewhere in the neighborhood of, you know, five and 90 was going to get this deal done, but it shows you what I know because he got, what, seven and 177 from the Chicago <laughs> Cubs. So he parlayed a career year into a great market for shortstops, and he got the big payday. And I, I just don't feel like the Braves were ever really in that arena to compete for anybody's services. Ben mentioned the Conga line of extensions, and it really has been one, um, not only among their homegrown players, but also guys who they trade for and then seem to immediately extend and have all of them donate to the Braves Foundation. So as they are thinking through their roster construction and thinking through trade targets, how are they getting all of these extension deals done? Are they specifically targeting guys in trade who they anticipate would be amenable to an extension? Um, and are there any other candidates on the roster currently who you think they might try to target in a similar way? I definitely think as they size up the trade candidates that they are looking for players that would fit both the short term and the long term. When you look at the ages of, say, Matt Olson and Sean Murphy, clearly they're in their prime years. And why wouldn't you want to have these guys around even longer? And if you are going to put trade assets into you know, acquiring a player, don't you want to get the most that you can get out of it? So I think that they do look for guys like Matt Olson is an Atlanta native. He went to Parkview, same high school as Jeff Francoeur, and you know it just happened to start his career, professional career, out on the West Coast. Sean Murphy's a Nashville guy. So maybe regionally speaking, I don't know if you can call these these two guys TBS kids because I think they were kind of in their formative baseball years after TBS kind of stopped carrying the Braves. But it does seem like Atlanta and the Braves do have quite a large footprint as far as their fan base is concerned. And a lot of players, I think, aspire to be a part of that. And, and that aspirational part of their brand might just be one of those X factors that a lot of clubs would love to have. But the Braves seem to have that. But from a, a player valuation standpoint, I think they look at the players both internally and externally that they feel like are going to be smart investments that they can avoid going through the arbitration process with, that they can keep around for a long time and offer that, I think, cost certainty for the player and also the payroll certainty that they know exactly what they've got and where they're going to be able to maneuver financially. And as they have kind of found this second golden era of Atlanta Braves baseball, winning a World Series, winning the division five consecutive years, selling out the ballpark seemingly every single night. I mean, they're on track for, I think, huge attendance this year. They've already cut off season ticket sales. They're in a place where they're bringing in the revenue. And I feel like this is what you always want to see as a fan, knowing that that revenue, or at least a, a good portion of it, a very competitive portion of it, is going into the payroll of your club. And that, I think, with a corporate ownership 
had been a little bit of a question mark in some of these lean years for the Braves. Yeah, I would guess that with each extension signed, the pitch to the next prospective extension candidate gets a little bit easier, right? But it's still kind of curious that everyone marvels at how are they doing this or wow, it's so impressive that they're doing this and no one else is really doing it on the same scale. It's not like they invented the concept of signing players to extensions. People often comp them to John Hart's team before he was with Atlanta in the 90s with Cleveland, who maybe sort of pioneered this practice. But it seems like the the Braves have just been more aggressive or more successful about getting it done. And as noted, given all their success, it's maybe an easier sell. So there's more success ahead. And we will talk about some of the strong points on the roster because there are a lot of them. Maybe we can start with one weak point or potentially two. So we talked a little bit about the doubts, the uncertainty surrounding shortstop. If you go by the Fangraph's depth charts projections, left field is the glaring point because the Braves project to have the worst left fielders in baseball by war and some of the same guys in the mix at DH where they project to be 20th in DH war. So do you think there's a a way that they could avoid that fate? What are they hoping for from those guys? And is there an area where they might make additions midseason? Yeah, there's always the possibility to address the needs that you have in season. And I think that's something Alex Antopoulos has done clearly very well for this club more times than not. And nothing bigger than reinventing your entire outfield in 2021 and winning the World Series. But that is kind of a a pie in the sky, maybe once in a lifetime kind of accomplishment. But Eddie Rosario last year with his vision problems was simply not Eddie Rosario. And while he's not one of the preeminent sluggers in all of baseball— he was an extremely useful player for, I think, a number of years for Minnesota. He got, he's he got some power. He's not a plus defender, but he does okay for himself, at least, uh, I think, around league average anyway. Not having him make any kind of impact last year, that certainly hurt the left field production, no question about it. A second consecutive year of Marcelo Zuna having both troubles on the field and off the field, I think, tested that group even more. And then you looked at DH, where the Braves, they never seemed to have a clear plan last year. Ronald Acuna Jr. got some time there because they were trying to you know, be a little more careful with his surgically repaired knee. William Contreras, when he wasn't catching, would DH a little bit here and there. Ozuna got at bats at the DH spot. But by and large, the Braves really didn't have an answer. They were out trading for Robbie Grossman at the trade deadline just to try to throw something at left field last year. This year, I feel like a few different things have kind of come together for both DH and for left field. Number one, Eddie Rosario looks like Eddie Rosario again. That can't be, I think overstated how important he could be as kind of a linchpin piece in getting left field to at least be league average or better production. I I think Eddie's going to be a central figure in that. If Marcelo Zuna is able to be any kind of a contributor this year, anywhere close to just maybe a career norms average season, not that near triple crown deal that he did in 2020, that would certainly be helpful as well. Maybe it helps solidify DH. Then as you go get Sean Murphy and you have Travis Darno. One of those two catchers can also DH. So I think that's a big part of how those positions are going to shake out by and large. Then you look at the quantity factor that the Braves have thrown at it from, a, I think, a quality outfield depth perspective. They went out and they got Sam Hilliard. They signed Kevin Pillar. They traded for Eli White. Uh, they've signed Jordan Luplo. So they have more options and more depth for left field specifically. Maybe those aren't really DH candidates. But I think that they have what's necessary to go in and attack it with numbers, even if they didn't throw a lot of money to fix the problem, because they basically already had $26 million tied up between Marcelo Zuna and Eddie Rosario as your quote-unquote left fielder DH combo. So 
I think there's reasons to be hopeful for that, but I also think, you know, you have to be realistic. Somebody's going to have to perform, or as you pointed out, maybe they're going to be out there shopping again to try to get an outfielder to help them out. Well, we can maybe stick in the outfield and note that one place where our depth charts really love Atlanta is in center field. Um, the Braves are fourth on our depth chart projections, and two of the teams ahead of them employ Mike Trout and Julio Rodriguez. They'll obviously be looking for a strong season from Michael Harris II in his sophomore year. He was my Rookie of the Year vote uh, going into the offseason. His season was really superlative, but there are a couple of places where we might point to potential regression. He didn't walk very much. He strikes out a fair amount. There have been concerns throughout his prospect around um, some of the bat-to-ball stuff, but he played great defense. He obviously sold 20 bases. He hit almost 20 home runs. So what are your expectations for his sophomore campaign? Are there places where he might regress, and are there places where he might sort of advance his game even further? I think he'll advance because of the kind of player that he is and and the work ethic. You asked about factors of why the Braves invest in certain players. And I think it starts from not just the on-field talent level, but also the kind of person that they're drafting, developing, and ultimately signing to an extension. And I don't know if there's a better example of that than Michael Harris II, because as much as, you know, Braves fans can get excited about these extensions, I would say there were some that were unexpected. And Harris was certainly one of those, but his emergence last year was unexpected, at least from a timeline perspective. But a couple of years ago in 2020, I think you know Michael Harris came in and flashed some skills that got on people's radar. I mean, in 2021, you know he was going to be in the lower level of the minors and not really going to be a huge factor, but he got the attention that you need to have people kind of asking, "What about that Harris kid?" And seeing him a little bit more in spring training in 2022 led you to believe that it could be closer uh, as far as his emergence as a big league player. But I don't know that any of us could have expected the rookie season that he put up. I think he's capable of being a 280-plus hitter. The on-base skills would clearly go up if he's able to show a little bit more patience at the plate, even a 340 to 350 on-base percentage to to go along with that. I think he could slug somewhere between 475 and, and 500, maybe better, because he's shown some emerging power and you know, he went home, and I don't think he stopped working over the course of the offseason. He looked great when I saw him in spring training, and he was depositing baseballs over the offices in right field at the Braves Spring Training Park. And that's not a thing that I really remembered about Michael Harris, a couple of titanic home runs he hit last year notwithstanding. It's just all of his skills are legit. The arm is legit. The glove's legit. He runs. He, he, he's uh, got the power. It, it's all there. It's just, I think, taking those steps and maybe kind of finding your way through the adjustments that the league makes to you the second time around that's going to take him to that next level. But he is an incredibly hard worker, student of the game, and even when he's not hitting, he does so much in center field that's just going to continue to cement his value for this club. But I think he's a 2020 player capable of that. Where they put him in the lineup will obviously dictate the level of run production he may have, but I think that the Braves are going to find Michael Harris right in the middle of a lot of good things going on offensively in 2023. Well, let's move from a 2020 potential player to a 4040 potential player, at least. At least he has been in the past. So you mentioned some restraint surrounding Ronald Acuna and his comeback from injury. Are all limitations off now? Is he back to full strength? And if so, do you expect to see the same power speed combo that we saw before he got hurt? Yeah, I definitely do. It was the power that wasn't there last year that kind of made you wonder where exactly did that go? But I think that there was a lot of 
consternation for Ronald just trusting the leg again, maybe in some places, and having a significant amount of time off, and then rehabbing, and then coming back in, and then dealing with some of maybe the residual soreness that happens after a big injury like that. But in talking to both you know the club uh, from the winter fan fest to spring training to hearing from Ronald himself, it, all these limitations are off. He feels a hundred percent clearly. The club felt that. The limitations are off. He went and played in the World Baseball Classic, and he was back out in center field, which is not a place that he's going to play very much because of Michael Harris. But we saw Ronald play exactly one inning in center field last year. It's just not a place that he had been very often. He has the speed to cover it, but I think he's better suited as a right fielder. And uh, the offensive profile that he showed before the the surgical procedure on the knee and, and kind of that hurdle that was thrown at him there. I think he's going to come out and, and get back to the Ronald Acuna Jr. that we're accustomed to seeing. The power I've seen in spring training looks like that's going to translate to games. And last year, even though he was dealing with a knee injury, the sprint speeds were still pretty good, not what they were pre-surgery, but he also stole 29 bases. So he wasn't so timid that he wasn't going to run anymore. And I asked him point blank at, at FanFest, I said, look, some of these rules changes could mean more stolen bases for you. Is that something you're thinking about? And he said two things. And he kind of smiled. He's like, well, you got to get there first, but... I'm always looking to steal. So as far as 40-40 goes, it might just be the home runs that we're waiting on because the stolen bases, I think, are going to be there for him. And I think he enjoys that part of his game. So I expect big things from him. He's, what, 25 years old. He's in the prime of his career. I think the best for Ronald Acuna Jr. is yet to come. He was showing it in 2021. Last year was a little bit of a step back, but now I think is a great season for him to kind of remind baseball that he is one of the top talents in the entire game. This isn't uncommon for a team that projects as well as Atlanta does, but there aren't a lot of positional battles on the position player side here. I mean, we could go player by player and ask what you expect of Matt Olson or Austin Riley or any of the rest, but I'm curious, are there any spots that were sort of more competitive and unsettled going through camp? And then are there any guys among the the returning stalwarts where you're looking for you know them to elevate their game to another level in 2023? Yeah, a few more battles in spring training than just shortstop. There was the fifth spot of the rotation, which we can maybe get into pitch in a moment separately if you want to. But as far as the position players, all of those left fielders, I think, had an opportunity to earn some playing time. Sam Hilliard looked great. I know that hitters who don't necessarily really strike it big with the Colorado Rockies are kind of a, a quizzical thing, but the Braves really like what they've seen out of him. Uh, so I think he's a guy that could be somebody that maybe keep an eye on from a, a good contribution standpoint. We'll see. But if you're looking at the overall lineup regulars and guys who could take a big step forward. I think it's going to be a career year offensively for Sean Murphy just by getting out of the Coliseum. I think Matt Olson, and if you've looked at what he's done this spring, it's it's hard not to get caught up in numbers like that. Eight home runs, 18 runs knocked in uh, with another one on Monday. So he looks to be primed. He's made a slight swing adjustment. If you look at his stance, he no longer holds his bat out forward ahead of him before he gets started with his swing. It's now kind of tilted back, which seems minor, but it looks mighty fluid right now. And I think that, you know, with the Freddie Freeman saga behind him, with the coming home to Atlanta, getting traded two weeks before, three weeks before opening day, all of that behind him, it's a pretty clear path for him, I think, to have a great season. I expect even bigger things out of Austin Riley because of what he has shown at times the last two years. Both of those guys could hit 40 homers. Ronald Acuna Jr. could hit 40 homers. Ozzy Albies was a 30-homer hitter before his injury last year that kind of sapped him of his usefulness to the Braves last year. I, I posted a tweet about a week ago. The Braves got 28 home runs out of Eddie Rosario, Ronald Acuna Jr., and Ozzy Albies combined last year. 
that group could easily triple that number this season. And when you look at the Braves maybe not making the biggest splash offensively or signing a big free agent to replace Dansby Swanson, just by getting those guys back to normal, they may be seeing a big return and they may be seeing one of the best offensive lineups in baseball. I just you look at it and there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic about it. You have to temper that with the you know being realistic about injuries and attrition and things that do happen over the course of a season. But there's an awful lot of good hitters all lined up, seemingly one through eight, at least in the Braves lineup. And then Orlando Arcia could come in and maybe surprise a few folks. So offensively speaking, I think the Braves are in a really good spot. So let's transition to pitching. There are a couple arms who won't be around this year because of Tommy John surgeries, Waskar Inoa and Tyler Matzek. There are also some more nagging injuries that some players are dealing with right now, and maybe we can talk about those guys. So shoulder issues for Rysel Iglesias and Kyle Wright, and then you have some muscle strains for Colby Allard and Michael, not Mike, right? Michael Soroka. So what is the status of that quartet when can the Braves expect some of their injured arms back? Hopefully sooner than later in the case of all of those men. I don't really have much of an update on Colby Allard, who was very excited to rejoin the Braves organization, but I don't know if fans were really more excited for a comeback story more so than that of Michael Soroka. I think people were hoping to see it. The hamstring injury, he suffered it the day before he was driving down to report for pitchers and catchers and and to get his spring training started. So that was obviously frustrating. Uh, I I spoke with Michael a little bit when I was down in spring training, and he just felt like, hey, this is a temporary setback. And as it happens, he has made his Grapefruit League debut. They are going to option him or did option him to AAA because he's going to need time to make four or five, maybe more starts to both build his pitch count up, knock off some rust. He got a half a dozen minor league starts last year. I think that's a big part of his comeback as well. Uh, so maybe sometime before April's over, if you need him, Michael Soroka is going to be ready. But for Rysel Iglesias, for Kyle Wright, it should be much sooner than that. Uh, the Braves are hoping Wright's only going to miss one regular season start. They're going to open with him on the IL. That opened the door for Dylan Dodd to make the rotation out of spring training. That's been a great story down in Northport. And Jared Schuster, one of the Braves' first-round picks from back in 2020, he won the fifth spot in the rotation over Ian Anderson and over Bryce Elder. So it's been a very interesting I don't know, revolving door or, or, or series of musical chairs in the back two spots of the Braves rotation. But Wright should be back soon. Iglesias, they said it was just a very mild or very minor inflammation. They just didn't want to push it too hard here in the first week. Give them the time to let that go down. And then uh, I was looking at an article posted on Fangraphs uh, earlier on Monday. Braves seem to have the number one bullpen in baseball, at least by projections. Iglesias mm-hmm. is a huge part of that. So they need him healthy and they don't want to push anything in April. You mentioned Dodd and Schuster, and I wanted to ask about them. For Braves fans who are less familiar with their game, what what can be expected from them? Because I think you're right, they really did open eyes this spring. They did. And the biggest thing I think that they were doing that was not happening with specifically Ian Anderson and to a lesser extent Bryce Elder was that they were attacking the strike zone. I mean, Jared Schuster and Dylan Dodd both, they worked quick. They threw strikes. They've got great stuff. I think for Schuster... It's a really good changeup, and then the fastball can play there in the in the mid to low 90s, at least uh, for, for the majority of it, and I think he's got an effective breaking ball, so he's got the arsenal that you need, and first-round picks, like we said, they're going to find their way to the majors, but I think this is a, a well-earned opportunity for him. Dylan Dodd came a little bit uh, as a surprise. I was on the backfields, and Dylan Dodd was working on or working against major league hitters. And there was a group that included Ronald Acuna Jr. And as I was walking up and I was hearing some of the players leaving, 
Um, it's a couple of the Braves minor league pitchers were like, yeah, they've got Dodd out there. He just struck out the side on like 10 or 11 pitches or something like that. And Ronald Acuna Jr. was in that group. So if you're out there striking out some of the big league regulars, you're going to open some eyes. And then that's exactly what he did in Grapefruit League play. He's had maybe a couple of hiccups, but not much to speak of. And again, the strike throwing, mid-90s, works quick, and just exactly what the Braves wanted to see out of him was come in and be competitive. They just didn't get that out of, I think, Ian Anderson, who was still looking to make mechanical adjustments. And to a lesser extent, Bryce Elder, I think he just kind of got pushed out because Dodd and Schuster were so impressive. And the Braves are going to give opportunity. And I think that those are two guys that could really shine for them and pitch some important innings early in the year. And you're going to see Jared Schuster in the first series, and you're going to see Dylan Dodd in the second series of the season. So the Braves are really giving these two kids the chance to step in and step up. So as you noted, the best projected bullpen in baseball, some holdovers here, but also some new additions. Joe Jimenez is here and Nick Anderson and Lucas Lutke, et cetera. So how do you expect this group to shape up, I guess, in Iglesias' absence and then hopefully when he returns? I think we see A.J. Mentor get the opportunity to close, but he was the Braves' best reliever last year. And part of, I think, what made him so good is you could employ him in the seventh inning, and the eighth inning, or the eighth inning, or the ninth inning, if you wanted to, but the Braves did have guys closing, so you didn't have to use AJ that way. And I think that's the role he'll return to once they get Iglesias back in and slotted at closer. Another name on top of those new additions that you mentioned to keep in mind is the Braves have Kirby Yates, who did throw some innings for him last year, but was a big-time closer in 2019 for the Padres. He had to go through a second Tommy John. He's looked good. The splitter, the velocity is also there for him. He could be a name to keep in mind for some important leverage innings and outs for the Braves in 2023. And then they've got a left-hander named Dylan Lee, who was kind of an unsung hero for the Braves last year as a rookie. He's looked outstanding this spring. And if they're able to get that kind of production out of him and some of the other veterans that they've brought in, I just feel like the depth is certainly there. Even without Iglesias, you have a chance to maybe see what Nick Anderson can offer after a couple of injury-plagued years. He seems to be back up into the mid-90s and has been known to miss some bats. So The Braves really have, I think, a great group of both righties and lefties who can get that swing and miss or can get that ground ball. And Brian Snitker and the Braves can use them in a variety of ways. And just somebody has to come in and slam the door. And I guess that'll be Rysel Iglesias when he's ready to go. I want to pop back to the rotation for a second, because if it were not for the presence of Michael Harris II, Atlanta probably still would have gone home with the NL Rookie of the Year award. And Spencer Strider, he had an incredible season, so it's hard to imagine how he might improve things. But what have you seen from him so far this spring? And are there areas of his game that he's trying to advance? Again, I don't know how you do much better than a one eight three FIP and almost five wins by our version of War at Fangraphs. But um, are there things that he's targeting this year that he'd like to improve upon? Yeah, when you roll into your first full season, you're not even a starter until basically Memorial Day, and you still become the fastest pitcher to 200 strikeouts just just ahead of Randy Johnson's pace. I mean, that's a pretty incredible accolade in and of itself. And yeah, most years, he could have been the Rookie of the Year. But one thing that's as impressive as Spencer Strider's stuff and what we see on the mound is the mental side of his game. He's somebody that also, he had to go through Tommy John surgery, and I think that mentally elevated his focus on how to get everything out of his significant talents. And he's one of those that's subscribed to the idea of, I want to be 1% better today than I was yesterday. And he goes out there and he, he studies. He's a student of the game. He talks about baseball in a way that would make you think this is a 10-year veteran. But one of the, I think, the great things about Spencer Strider is it's not just arm talent. He's got it, I think, between the ears, and he's very, very hyper-focused on trying to find ways to elevate his game. So 
I would expect to see, in addition to that fastball and that slider, maybe a step forward with the changeup, which is kind of a show-me pitch for him, but might be a little bit better now as he continues to polish that up. And then he's got time to you know, pick the brain of a Max Fried or a Charlie Morton or whoever it may be. And I think that that kind of helps elevate that group as well because they're all different styles, but they all have this, I think, synergy of the workmanship and the focus and, and the group mentality that they're, I think, going to kind of drive each other in that good competitive way. And Spencer Strider is rather competitive. So I could see that all kind of coming together to really help him take that game that was significantly more than any of us could have imagined last year to perhaps being a perennial 200-plus strikeout guy, the league leader in strikeouts, whatever it is. The Braves are certainly banking on that because they signed him to a long-term extension, and he's the only pitcher in that group of extensions as well, and I thought that was pretty interesting. The Braves have hired away a bunch of executives from the Astros. The Astros did the same to the Braves this winter. They hired Dana Brown as their new GM, the Braves' former scouting director. What part did Dana Brown play in putting this Braves group together, and in what ways will he be missed? I think he played a part that a lot of folks it might have gone unnoticed, but then you start to see that some of these Dana Brown draft classes are not only giving you players like Michael Harris or like Spencer Strider, but Dylan Dodd and Jared Schuster, Shea Langoliers got traded to get Matt Olson. I mean, a lot of these guys have been either useful at the big league level for the Braves or, or are on their way to being, or they've been used in some very significant trades, including the Sean Murphy trade this year as well. It's going to be, I think, something that the Braves do and, and most, I think, you know, top tier clubs that they don't get to draft near the top anymore. So it's not going to prop up your prospect rankings just by the virtue of having a top 10 pick every year. You don't want to be having a top 10 pick every year if you're doing the winning you want to do. But I think Dana Brown was really great at identifying players that really fit the mold of both the talent and from the person level. One of the guys he raved about on draft night uh, quite a few years ago was Braden Shoemake. And I'm interested to see now here what four years later, Braden Shoemake all of a sudden started to open some eyes in big league camp. So I think he had a great view of both what a player was and what a player could become. And that's exactly, at least it sounds like to me, the kind of thing that the Houston Astros would love to have because they've had a pretty great thing going over there for a while as well. And, you know, they want to continue to put players in that talent pipeline and bring them to the big leagues. And I think Dana Brown's going to be a great fit for that. Yeah. So speaking of Atlanta's pipeline, according to MLB Pipeline, they just released their rankings this week, I think, and the Braves are dead last. Now, obviously, they're down there for a good reason. They've promoted a lot of players and they have good young players in the major league mix. But how much of an issue is that they and the Royals were the only teams not to have a player on the Fangraphs top 100 or top 112 for that matter? So at what point could that become a problem and what can they do to replenish the farm system even as they're winning at the major league level and as you said, not getting top picks? Yeah, I think that one thing that's going to open a door for the Braves to improve just by default is the fact that they have now been able to sign international players over the last couple of signing periods. That was something the Braves did not have for a number of years in the fallout from the 2017 prospect scandal that got John Coppolella banned from baseball for a while. And now obviously he's he's back in. He could get a, a job somewhere if he would like. So putting that, all of that aside, I think the international side of that really weakened the Braves farm system because it's hard to imagine a club that you know is building at the minor league level and is not really able to go out and get the high-end Latin American talents when you look at the you know the overall fabric of the game, that's an integral part of that. So finding and identifying players internationally would be number one. Continuing to draft smart and develop players, and I think the Braves have done a really good job of that. Even as they're you know 
uh, status as one of the top farm systems in baseball kind of slid out of the top five, then out of the top 10, then down into the 20s, and now, I guess, all the way to the bottom. You're still talking about less than a calendar year ago, Michael Harris and Spencer Strider were virtual unknowns to the majority of the baseball world, and they exploded onto the scene last year. And here we are talking about Jared Schuster and Dylan Dodd getting the opportunity to start in the Braves rotation. The right injury, certainly part of that. The Soroka injury, part of that. But over postseason exploits like Ian Anderson has and over a pretty useful pitcher like Bryce Elder was a year ago. And that's another name of somebody that they developed most recently. So it may not be the biggest names and the most exciting players in the prospect world, but I just think that the Braves have a way of finding value where they can for what they have to work with at the minor league level. And they're going to have to continue to kind of use a little bit of ingenuity down there to replenish the talent that they have lost from both the uh, the emergence and the graduation of prospects, but also some of the trades that they've done recently as well. I would imagine that's been a little bit of a factor in why the Braves aren't looked upon quite as highly in the prospect ranks. All right. So we always end these segments by asking what would constitute a successful season for the team in question. When you're talking about the team with the best projection, according to Fangrass, there are certain expectations that come with that, especially when you're a recent World Series winner and a multi-time defending division title winner. So I guess more of the same would be one way to gauge success. But to get more granular, what should Braves fans be looking for or hoping for from this season? I think there's only one answer. It's go out and win the whole thing all over again. And that's what some of these players want to experience that weren't there that first time. They have some holdovers, but there's been a lot of changes to the Braves roster since 2021. I think they're down to five or six players that were part of that. So there's a whole new group. It's a great experience. The fan base certainly loved it. Hadn't seen it in two and a half decades. They'd love to make sure they don't have to wait quite as long this time around. And I think they've built the kind of club that should be one of the last teams standing in October at the very least. All right. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to Grant about the Braves, and you can hear him talk about the Braves, as mentioned, in many, many places. But (laughs) 92.9 The Game, from the Diamond, from thediamond.com. You can find him at Grant McCauley, his name on Twitter. That's just one C. And his bio will point you to all the other places you can find him. Thanks very much for joining us again, Grant. Yeah, always a great time. Really enjoyed it. And anytime you guys need anything regarding the Braves and Atlanta and talking a little baseball, I'm happy to do it. All right, we have one, that's right, one team left to preview. It's those wacky Colorado Rockies, and we'll be right back with Danielle Allentuck to try to figure out what the Rockies are up to now. I would like to say, last but not least, the Colorado Rockies, but we are going in order here of projected win totals, descending order, that is, and the Rockies come last, so I guess they are also least, or at least least in terms of projected wins. However, I can say that our guest is last but not least. She covers the Rockies for the Denver Gazette. Her name is Danielle Allentuck. Hello, Danielle. Hi, how are you guys? We're doing okay. So I guess I'll start here because this is always a fun question where the Rockies are concerned. How good do you think the Rockies think they are? 
because there have been some seasons where I would say they differed considerably from the consensus and from the projections. I would guess that Dick Montfort would dispute that they are the worst team in baseball or will have the fewest wins in baseball, but maybe he wouldn't go to 94 this year as he once did. So where do they think they are in terms of the division or the playoff race or just the general progress of the organization? I mean, that is a fantastic question because this team <laughs> thinks that everybody else is wrong. They think that they're being right. undervalued, that, you know, if everybody just plays their best, they're going to be great this year. Um, realistically, they think they're playing 500 baseball this year. Okay. Well, I guess that's within the realm of possibility, perhaps, if uh, absolutely everything goes right. You'd think that there would be sort of a Charlie Brown and Lucy with the football sort of situation where every year they kind of, look, they, they're optimists. They're glass half full. They see the upper percentile ranges of every player's projection instead of the mean projection, I guess. And you would think that uh, after enough years of falling short of that, they might factor that into their expectations. But it doesn't seem that that's the case. No, you know, one would think, um, especially because they haven't been to the playoffs in now five years. But, you know, they're like, if every player has their best season ever, they'll be okay. If Mike Rusakas can get back to how he was in 2015, if Chris Bryant can be an MVP again, they're just like, look at all the possibilities here. And realistically, half their team has well past their prime. Half your team is not major league ready, so they're not exactly anywhere close to contending. Maybe we can be a little bit generous to them before we run through all of the various ways in which they will underperform their own expectations. Are there any places either on the big league roster or in the farm system where you do see the potential for, even if it's not um, outperforming projections, but just sort of superlative performances that might indicate a player who is going to be part of the next good Rockies team whenever that ends up being? Yeah, I mean, they have a couple of prospects that if everything works out, they'll be really good. I think all-star caliber players. Um, one of those is Ezekiel Tovar. He'll be their shortstop this year. He's going to start for them. His defense is spectacular. Think Trevor Story back when he debuted as a young kid. Um, Tovar is kind of on that track. The bat is still a little to be seen how he's going to do at the major league level. But he has that potential um, and he can handle it defensively at shortstop, which is what they need right now. And then they sent him to the minors to start the season. But Zach Vigin is one of their top prospects. He's one of the top prospects in baseball. And he is just a fun player to watch. He is going to do really well with the new rules. He's fast. He steals bases. He can you know, hit those little bloopers into the middle of the outfield. He's just really good. He's really fun. And I think he's got the personality to do really well at the major league level. I would expect to see him up in about July if everything goes right. Um, and he's got the defense, too. He can play all three outfield positions. And he's just sort of one of those guys you look at and you're like, he could be a star if everything works out. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about how the rules changes might affect the Rockies. On the one hand, they didn't shift a lot, so they won't miss shifting that much on defense. But Sam Miller, in his Rockies annual essay for the Baseball Prospectus book, which is on the Baseball Prospectus website now, made the case that the rules changes would actually hurt them. He wrote, if playing in an extreme ballpark is the Rockies' main disadvantage, this year's rules changes seem designed to make things worse. Limiting pickoff attempts and expanding the size of the bases will make base runners 
batters more dangerous. Rockies pitchers regularly face the most batters with runners on base. They're fourth in the NL in pickoff attempts since 2017. Imposing pitch clocks will force pitchers to work more quickly. Pitchers at altitude are already prone to fatigue because of the thin air. Rockies pitchers have the third slowest pace among NL pitchers since 2010. Banning the shift will make balls put in play more productive. The Rockies pitchers have the NL's lowest strikeout rate in three of the past four seasons and thus typically allow the most balls in play. Do you think that's a fair evaluation? And are the Rockies doing anything in particular to safeguard themselves against those things or to prepare themselves to take advantage of the new rules? I mean, that all sounds about right to me. Um, (laughs) As for the pitch clock, I don't see that being any bigger of an issue for Rockies pitchers than it will be for any other pitcher across the league. Um, You know, they've had all spring to work with it. They're used to the wear and tear of altitude. Um, So I don't know if I necessarily agree with that part with them being more tired just because they do play half their games there. So I feel like that would impact more. You know, an opposing team only comes there once a year and isn't used to the altitude. As for pickoff attempts, I mean, the Rockies catchers are not fantastic um, in general. Um, They have really good catching prospects on their way up, but the two they have now, Elias Diaz and Brian Servan, they're just sort of passable at the major league level. Um, Diaz has better defense than Servan, but I I do think that that will hurt them a lot. Um, They did get rid of their slowest pitcher, Alex Colomay. Um, who was, I believe, the slowest pitcher in the league last year, if not like close to that. Uh, they should be a little bit better on that front, too. Um, they have a couple more left-handed bats this year, which should help them hitting against the shift. But, you know, one of those left-handed bats, Jerson Profart, hasn't even gotten a visa yet, isn't in the United States yet. So not entirely sure uh, when he'll be added to the lineup to be able to help them there. Are the Rockies doing anything new to try to prevent the hangover effect, the famous or infamous hangover effect that seems to plague them and leads to big home road splits every year? The fact that whether it's physical fatigue or just the difference in how pitches move going from altitude to less altitude, it seems to affect them. And they have tried various techniques to ameliorate the effects of that over the years. And I don't know that there's any sign that it's helping, but have they just sort of resigned themselves to that being a permanent part of the Rockies experience or do they think they can do anything about it? So I feel like they're always trying something new. Um, This is my third year covering the team and every spring I feel like there's some talk about something new they're trying to do this. Um, But it's been 30 years and they have not quite figured it out yet. Um, A couple of things they are trying this year is they are going to do more rest time for players so you'll see at home this year, you know, Charlie Blackman may sit three of the six home games just to keep him fresher. They may rotate the designated hitter spot a little bit more this year uh, just to kind of combat a little bit of that tiredness. They do have, you know, the Rockies have been known for having one of the smallest research and development departments in all of the league. They had one person there for one season um, two years ago. They've rebuilt that department. And now that they have more people there, they have more people who have been able to, you know, analyze the pitchers a little bit more. And for example, with Austin Gomber, one of their starting pitchers, they've kind of learned a little bit with his fastball. If they change it up a little bit, you know, he'll pitch better at altitude and then they change it back from when he's at sea level. So they have made some technological advancements. They're not above anybody else. I would say they're more caught up to where the rest of the league is there, but they're hoping that will help. 
And they also have a new hitting coach this year, which the home road splits have been so bad because they've not been able to figure out how to hit on the road. So they're not doing anything drastically new with their hitters, but they're just kind of hoping that a new hitting coach, fresh eyes, will make the difference for them. Is there a hangover effect for Rockies beat writers? And I don't mean <laughs> drinking yourself to sleep after the games. I mean, in terms of travel. And is there anything that you do to ease that? I mean, I just feel dehydrated every time I come back to Colorado. <laughs> I've gotten a little used to it, but you definitely notice it. Um, and people who like have never been to Colorado, they come and they're like, they feel it. I don't know if I, everybody experiences altitude a little bit differently. A lot of people can't sleep. A lot of people get like really chapped lips. I'm lucky that all I feel is dehydrated, but it's, it definitely is there. You mentioned Moustakis and his signing was necessitated by the unfortunate injury to Brendan Rogers in spring training. How are they thinking about playing time and positioning their infielders with him out? And what's the latest on his potential timeline for return? Yeah, so Brendan Rogers is probably out for the rest of the season. They haven't, you know, put that definite label on it yet. But if he does come back, it won't be until September. His shoulder was pretty torn apart there. Uh, so they had to do a complete surgery of the labrum. Uh, the, what they're thinking right now for their infield is there are CJ Crone at first. Ryan McMahon will move from third to second. Ezekiel Tobar will start at shortstop. And then third... Depending on the pitcher, the plan is to switch off between Alvarez Montero, who uh, was a rookie last year, and Musakas. And they'll trade off depending on if it's a lefty or righty pitching that day. But Musakas, you know, he's dropped 20 pounds. His legs are healthy. He's hitting really well. He's moving really well. So I wouldn't be surprised if Montero, you know, being so young, he'll probably start to struggle at some point if we'll see Musakas getting more and more playing time. On the surface, at least, Ryan McMahon had a very similar 2022 to his 2021, but I have seen him mentioned as a possible breakout this year. Eno Saris listed him among his 10 bold predictions. Ryan McMahon will hit 30 homers and be an all-star. Do you see that sort of potential in McMahon, and what's the case for him being a breakout guy? I mean, I think this is kind of a really critical year for McMahon. He has his long-term contract now. He's kind of established himself in the league as a really strong defender, but he's never been above a .250 hitter. He's never kind of stood out um, that way at all. And he just sort of, he's one of those guys who just like understands his place in the league and his place on the team. Um, he's one of their leaders in the clubhouse. And he knows that he hasn't been setting the best example there. He's been putting a lot of pressure on himself. Mechanically, you know, he doesn't have to change anything. He just... Simply put, needs to relax a little bit. Just needs to play baseball the way he knows how to play it, and he knows he'll be better. He's just put so much pressure on himself the past couple of years. So I think that this year we'll either see if he can handle that, if he can kind of do that mental jump, or if he's just going to you know, be the average hitter who's good on defense that he's always been. I imagine that both the Rockies and Chris Bryant would like something of a mulligan for his first year in Colorado after signing a seven-year, $182 million contract. He missed much of the season with injury. What have you seen of him in spring so far? What are your expectations for him going into the 2023 season? So he looks pretty good this spring. Um, he's hitting well. He has four home runs, which is Almost as many as he had all of last season, which is a weird, <laughs> crazy stat. But the thing about Chris, and I've talked to him a lot about this, is he has learned 
you know, these injuries he had, the plantar fasciitis and the back strain, they're not injuries that you can just like put a cast on or have a surgery and it's better in six weeks and it never bothers you again. You know, these are two things that if he doesn't take care of them, will follow him for the rest of his career. So he has kind of learned like the other day he was on first base and somebody hit the ball and he probably could have made it home if he was like sprinting. But he was kind of like, I need to conserve my energy. I need to know like when it's worth it. This was a spring training game. It was pretty late in the game for him. He stopped at third, kind of just looked like he was jogging, didn't want to put too much pressure on his body at all. So he's learned what to do and what not to do to keep himself fresh. I expect him to have a decent season. I don't know if we're ever going to see that MVP caliber player again. But he's feeling good. He's hitting well. He will play right field this year, probably, more than left. Um, And again, he'll get a lot of rest time as they try to uh, rotate rest for more veterans this year. But, I mean, he's Chris Bryant. He's going to end up on the injured list at some point. He's going to hit maybe 20, 25 home runs. But I would expect it to be a lot better than last year. I think that's what they all are hoping for. So we were all wondering where and when Profar would sign, and the Rockies were the team finally. Why were they the team? Why did they think that there was a place for him, and what are they hoping from out of him, assuming that he is eventually able to report to the team? So the Rockies were really hoping that some of their prospects would have looked farther along this spring than they actually did. So they went out and got Nolan Jones from the Guardians, who they thought, you know, could be their left fielder this year. Uh, They had Sean Bouchard, who came up at the end of last year, and he was so steady, kind of the guy you can always rely on. Sean Bouchard ends up getting hurt. He's out for the season. Nolan Jones just, he just did not look polished. He did not look like a major leaguer. He just did not look ready for that spot at all. So they kind of found themselves being like, we don't have a left fielder right now. We need to go get somebody. And Profar fit the bell. He was relatively affordable for them um, by Rocky standards. I, As for when he's getting to the U.S., he had a meeting today with the consulate. I have not heard how that has gone yet. Um, but then it's approximately 20 hours of traveling after that. So... The goal is to have him meet the team in San Diego, uh, maybe not play opening day, but at least be with the team by opening day. I have not heard an update on that yet, but it's not looking great at this point. On the pitching side of things, there have been seasons when Herman Marquez has looked really good and not just, you know, adjusting for the fact that he's a Rockies pitcher and has to do, you know, so much in course, but has been quite good. Last year, I don't think qualifies as one of those seasons, you know, we saw his ERA creep up close to five. He had a fifth that was sort of in the same range. What has gone wrong for him in recent seasons and what kind of course correction do you think he might be able to employ to try to regain some of his prior form? Yeah, For Marquez, it's all about his fastball. If he can command his fastball, he arguably has the potential to be one of the top 20 pitchers in the league. But it has been a pitch that has given him so much trouble through the years. He's played around, you know, different grips and, you know, moving it differently and having to go to different spots. But he's just never been able to be consistent with it. And so for him, it's all about the delivery and being able to repeat the same delivery. He uh, he has this thing with his wrist where he kind of tilts it to the right a little bit. 
And when he does that, he can't control where the ball lands. So it's like the smallest adjustment he was showing me yesterday. It's like a couple centimeters. But if he can keep his wrist a little bit straighter, he's able to control the fastball that much more. And it, it really is as simple as that. You know, I've gone through the video of his 2021 season. He had about two months where, you know, he almost threw a no-hitter twice. He was an all-star. Uh, I think his ERA was under two for that period of time. And you just see his fastball, and it's just hitting exactly where he wants to be. So if he can get that under control, he's not super comfortable with his changeup. But if he can, you know, throw a couple each game, he's going to be able to get back on track. But it, it really just comes down to those couple centimeters with his wind-up and delivery. And how do you think the rest of the rotation stacks up? Because we're just a few years removed here from the Rockies having really a strong, promising, largely homegrown rotation. And some of those guys are still around, whether it's Marquez or Freeland. But as a group, it's uh, a little less fearsome than it once was. That's a good way to put it. It's really <laughs> it's really just Marquez and Freeland. Uh, those two are super strong. Um I would expect Freeland to have a pretty good game. He looked really good in a World Baseball Classic. Uh, but behind that, they have Austin Gomber, Ryan Feltner, and Jose Urena. Gomber has some potential there. Feltner is still developing. He's still pretty early into his career. And Urena is kind of past his prime at this point, but still a passable starter. But they don't have any starting pitching depth right now. If somebody gets hurt, they're in trouble. All their top pitching prospects are like down in low A, high A, like two to three years away. And I don't see them being able to like go out and find another starter if they need to, because it's the Rockies and they've never been able to do that. So last year, the rotation was the second worst in the league. I would be shocked if they're much better than that this year. Before we talk about any individual relievers, I want to ask a question about the team's philosophy to bullpen building, because this has been a place where they have committed a, a one might argue, curious amount of payroll <laughs> over the last couple of years. Um, and they continued that trend with their extension of Daniel Bard last July. So what do the Rockies think that the Rockies are accomplishing by their approach to building a relief core? Uh, if I have learned anything in the last three years is that if you try to think too hard about what the Rockies think they're doing, it's just going to give you a headache because they're really hard to explain. They go one way, they do all these extensions, and then they just don't sign any top free agents to back that up. Or they go pick up a bunch of guys off waivers and they send all their prospects down for no reason. So trying to figure them out is really hard. Um like I said, kind of similar to our starting pitching prospects, they don't have a lot of relief prospects to kind of help them out. So in order to build a bullpen, they had to go out and pick up guys wherever they could. So that was kind of what they did this offseason. They picked a lot of guys off waivers. They made some small trades. They made a couple free agent signings uh, late in the game for them. But they really just needed bodies this year. And that's really all it comes down to. Were they concerned at all about Bard's performance in the WBC? I think they were concerned, but not concerned to the level where they like think he has the gifts again. He really didn't look good when he left spring training to go join Team USA. He was kind of all over the place then. So I don't think anybody within the organization was surprised with how he did, considering how bad he looked before. But, you know, he's had about a week. They've been able to, you know, 
play around from a little bit, kind of slow him down. But the thing about Bard now versus 10 years ago is he has the mental understanding to kind of know, okay, like, I, I don't have the gifts again. I can calm myself down. Like, I can look at the video. I can practice it. Like, he he knows how to handle it now versus when he was a younger player. Looking up and down this steps chart, you alluded to this earlier. It's like some players are past their primes and others are not nearly there yet. There aren't a lot of players who are sort of in that sweet spot. There are a lot of early 30s, mid 30s players on this roster, which is not ideal. If you don't have a good team, you hope that it, it's at least a, a young bad team so that you can kind of dream on guys getting better. So do you think that anyone here is really a, a candidate to be traded if, as expected, the Rockies are out of it at the deadline? Like, is there anyone they're envisioning or that they picked up with an eye toward dealing midseason and maybe working in some younger players? Or is it just that the younger players aren't ready yet and someone has to play? You know, one would think they would be thinking about trade deals already, but this team does not. I mean, Nolan Arenado, they traded, obviously, but they do not typically make big trades. They didn't trade anybody last year at the deadline, even though they had CJ Crone and Dan Bard, who would have both been really good pickups for any contending team at the time. But they have like seven free agents, I believe, after this season, which is a lot for them. So one would think they would be trying to deal some of those guys, but like I said, they're really hard to read. If you think too much about what they're going to do, you really do get a headache. But I'm not entirely sure. The prospects, they were really hoping they were farther along, and that's kind of why they had to pick up some of these guys. But the thing that doesn't make a lot of sense about the Rockies is they spent all offseason, the whole second half of last year, being like, we love our prospects. We're going to let them play. We don't really care what happens, but they're our future, so we need to give them playing time. And then they kind of went out and got all these older players who will now take the playing time away from the prospects which completely changes the direction they were trying to go in. So I'm not, their strategy has changed. I don't exactly know which direction they're trying to go in anymore, but they definitely will not be chipping off half their roster because they just won't do that. You mentioned the investments they've made recently in trying to sort of replenish the baseball operations side of things. I think it sort of raised eyebrows when Sterling Monfort was named their director of pro scouting. I'm curious sort of what you've observed of the organization in terms of their approach to trying to bring in outside talent on the non-player side uh, to perhaps advance the fortunes of the club. It seems like on the one hand, they are sometimes willing to do that by reimagining baseball ops, but there's also a loyalty and nepotism element to this that's sort of hard to deny. So do you think that there's any potential for them to sort of change tact on that uh, absent an ownership change? I I don't think so. I mean, even that research and development uh, department that they're rebuilding, they promoted their longtime video coordinator to now the head of that department. Um, and he's really well respected in the clubhouse. Uh, he does, you know, have that knowledge of knowing everything the Rockies have done wrong and you know, being willing to go. He's been talking to the Broncos and other NFL teams to try to pick up what he can from them. But he was still, you know, hired from within the organization. So they are really, really loyal to the people they have. All the big front office hires they've made to kind of replenish their departments. They've been promoted from within and then they went out and hired younger people to fill those roles that were left vacant by the people they promoted. So 
is not always a bad thing. Uh, like I said, I think promoting the video coordinator was a pretty good role, but I also think that they really could benefit in some of these spots from some fresh eyes and kind of, you know, just somebody who maybe has worked with another MLB team and has seen what they've done to be successful. Despite how bleak the situation is, the Rockies have been bad for a while, and also they've just been adrift for a while in a way that really no other team is, seemingly. And yet, people go to Rockies games. They still have top 10 attendance. Now, I don't know whether that makes it so that the Rockies aren't getting the signal that they're doing something wrong here because people keep coming out to the games. But people do keep coming out to the games. So is that just because Coors is a nice place to see a game and the beer is cheap and there's something good about the spectator experience and the affordability of it. Why is Coors Field still such a draw, despite the fact that the Rockies, in theory, shouldn't be? I mean, Coors Field is awesome. I mean, they have $5 beers on the party deck. I mean, what more could a fan want? I think (laughs) you can get in for under $10. You don't even have to park. Like, there's a train that goes right there. So it is a very fun time. There are bars within feet of the stadium. Uh, So it is just Friday and Saturday nights is, you know, it's just a good vibe for fans to go to. I think the thing about Denver and Colorado, um, and I definitely fall into this category, is that there are a bunch of us who moved there because we love Colorado and we love the mountains, but we grew up on the other side of the country. So a lot of fans, people who live in Colorado are fans of, you know, the Cardinals or fans of the Dodgers, you know, Nationals, whatever it is, because they grew up in all these other cities and then moved to Colorado later on. So the course field every night is like half the stadium is cheering for a different team. A quarter of the stadium has no idea what team is playing. And maybe like a tenth of the stadium is there cheering for the Rockies or they just like, like Charlie Blackman or Chris Bryant because they are a Cubs fan. But I mean, it's just a fun place to be. Who wouldn't want to go there? Yeah. So that is a different kind of course field hangover effect, I guess. Maybe the, the kind that yes. you want, maybe, or I don't know. I guess it's not the worst kind. <laughs> anyway, um, the Rockies' recent contenders, I mean, semi-recent, the last time they were good, a lot of it was because they had good homegrown players. They had some stars. And the tragedy of it really was that they utterly failed to surround those stars with competent players, not even so much because they failed to spend as just because they couldn't evaluate free agents, it seems like. So they have a roughly middle-of-the-pack farm system now, according to most of the rankings out there. Would it still be fair to say that the Rockies' strength, or at least relative strength, is their homegrown players, is their player development pipeline, and you just have to hope that when those players arrive, they will not basically light money on fire every time they sign a free agent around that core? I don't know if it's their strength as much as it's the only way they want to go about building their team. They are not willing to go away from their scout draft and develop model that they have been doing for probably the entire existence of the Colorado Rockies. Uh, I mean, I remember at the trade deadline last year, we were in San Diego and the Padres, you know, just got in Han Soto and Josh Bell and, every other big name you can think of at the time. And they were already talking about all the players they were going to resign and all the money they were going to spend. And I remember asking Bill Schmidt, the Rockies GM, like, are you, you know, you see the way your competition is building your teams. Does it make you kind of rethink the way you're doing it um, to be competitive earlier and to be able to compete with this really tough division? 
And his exact quote was something along the lines of like, we can't keep up with the Joneses. So we're just going to keep doing what we can do. So they think it's what they do. Well, uh, it's not that they don't spend money. It's a thing. Don't right. I mean their payroll is pretty high, uh, but they just don't spend it wisely. And they just think that the track they're on, if they can, you know, sign one big name like Chris Bryant and then their prospects come up that maybe it'll all work out. But the thing with prospects is they're not proven players. And a lot of times they don't work out. And that's exactly how they found themselves in a situation where they don't have that starting pitching depth right now, because an entire generation of starting pitchers just did not work out for them. And they didn't sign anybody to kind of fill that hole. Yeah. We had a listener email a while back and the listener was just suggesting maybe we're thinking about the Rockies all wrong. We're just uh, evaluating them in terms of are they going to win and are they doing the things that other teams are doing? And maybe they're just sort of playing an entirely different game. Maybe they just kind of want to have fun and keep their guys around that they like. You know, we like Daniel Bard. We'll keep Daniel Bard around. We're not going to trade Daniel Bard. It's just maybe it's like a completely different objective, except it, it certainly seems like they would like to win, like they would maybe like to win the division for once in their existence you know <laughs> so i don't know that uh, they're just there to kind of like be a good hang even if, if that is kind of the case for a lot of the fans who are coming out to see them I, I think that they think that they're competitive so i think that goes back to the whole thing where like they think that they are better than they are and maybe they need that outside voice to come out and be really realistic with them and be like no you are not or <laughs> it's okay like let's just the Brackies can just bop around at the bottom of the league for their entire existence because that's kind of what they've been doing anyways. Mm -hmm. Well, we always end these previews by asking one last question, which is basically what would constitute a successful season for this team or how do we gauge at the end of it whether it went well relative to expectations, I suppose. So other than, well, if the Rockies get their wish and this is a 500 team, which if that's the highest you can aim, I guess that's kind of depressing, although we would make fun of them if they <laughs> said they were aiming any higher. So at least they have practiced some restraint when it came to their own predictions. But for you or for Rockies fans, how should they evaluate whether this season represents progress? I think I'm looking at, you know, a couple of things. I'm looking at does Marquez get back on track and does he have a few more good years left in him? I'm looking at some of these younger prospects. Is Ezekiel Tovar and Zach Bean, are they as good as the Rockies have been saying they are or are they kind of just middle-of-the-pack players? Um, I'm looking to see do they actually trade people and commit to, you know, letting these prospects play and maybe rebuilding a little bit more for their future. I think the thing with this team is they haven't had a direction. And I think a successful season would be them kind of figuring out what direction they are going. And is it going to be the prospects? Are they going to stick with this older crew? Or are they just going to kind of stick around and be a bad baseball team? Well, on that exciting note, you can follow Danielle's coverage of the Rockies at the Gazette and on Twitter at D underscore Alan Tuck. And whether the baseball is entertaining or not, it's always entertaining on some level to try to think along with the Rockies, even if it's difficult because they do seem to think differently than every other team. So I wish you well in that endeavor and also in weathering the altitude. Thank you, Danielle. Thank you. Well, we did it. Preview series complete. 
for yet another year. Hope you all enjoyed it. We have fulfilled our mission and we did it in time. I hope those of you who found the podcast during this preview series will come along for the ride in the regular season. And now we will give you a pass blast, which comes from the year 1986. A excellent year, a fine year, I would say. The year that we both came from. We are both <laughs> pass blessed from 1986. So quite fond of this year. And here's a pass blast from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And he writes, Thrift overhauls the pirates, brings baseball training into the future. Call it 2001, a baseball odyssey, wrote Bob Herzl of the Pittsburgh Press in a January 1986 article. Herzl's article told the story of the Pittsburgh Pirates welcoming technological advances in order to improve team success. Herzl wrote, Once they talked about hitting, throwing, catching, and running, forget it, went out with the St. Louis Browns. Come spring training, the Pirates are going to be into visualization, kinetic training, financial planning, and public speaking. The Pirates had recently hired Sid Thrift, a baseball lifer who ran the Kansas City Royals Baseball Academy in the 1970s as general manager. Thrift championed the idea of visualization in which the team hoped to eliminate the inaccuracies in what the human eye sees and increase concentration. In order to do so, Thrift and the Pirates enlisted the help of an optometrist named Dr. William Harrison, who was working individually with a few players to improve their concentration and thus their hitting. Other innovations Thrift attempted to bring to Pirates camp included developing a new conditioning program which sought to improve quickness, among other things. Thrift rationalized this change, saying, What I've found is that players work diligently on conditioning to get to the major leagues. Then, when they reach that plateau, they stop doing what got them here. They start pacing themselves. Further changes initiated by Thrift included public relations training for players, as well as financial planning classes and help with their taxes. That's Hmm. nice. I could have used that. Thrift's experiment sparked team success as the Pirates improved from a 57 and 104 record in 1985 to an 85 and 75 record in 1988 good enough for second in the NL East. The improvement halted there, though, as Thrift, who had disagreements with Pirates' ownership throughout his tenure, was fired by the team's board of directors following the 1988 season. This article, which I will link to as always, it has a a cool little graphic at the top of a baseball-playing robot. Sort of a scary looking baseball robot, but that goes along with the new age baseball theme here. And then talking about the visualization to improve hitter performance, Henry Harrison, not the president, the brief president, (laughs) but the optometrist said, there are drills. You can have a man concentrate upon just the outside of the ball or just the top of it. We found that if a man wants to be a pole hitter, he should watch the outside of the ball. He will get much quicker. A man who is popping up will watch the top of the ball and it will level off his swing. So I don't think this is exactly the type of visualization where it's just like imagining good things happening to you and thinking positive thoughts. I think it is at least partly about actual drills and concentrating on how and what you're seeing. So it seemed to work in the short term, or at least the pirates got better. I don't know if they got better because of this or not. But anyway, it sounds like they didn't continue this for long because Sid Thrift departed. And things have not been that great for the pirates for the majority of our lifetimes. So maybe they should have done more visualization. Maybe they should be visualizing more. Perhaps they are. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Couldn't hurt. Maybe Bob Nutting should visualize spending more money. And I will give you today's trivia answers. So the Atlanta Braves head-to-head record against the Rockies. The Braves have owned the Rockies all time. 
I guess that makes sense. The Braves yeah. have been uh, quite good <laughs> since the mid-90s or so, and the Rockies not as much. So the Atlanta Braves all-time 132-93 and 93 against the Rockies. And then as for the best and first Braves slash Rockies, the highest war hitter, career war, who played for both of these teams, Dale Murphy. Hmm. I don't know whether anyone remembers that Dale Murphy was a Rocky, but he was. It was his last stop as a major leaguer. Very briefly, he was with the Rockies in their first season, 93. So Dale Murphy, followed by Jonathan Lucroy, Ron Gant, Andre Scalaraga, and Matt Kemp. Then the top five pitchers who played for both these teams in terms of career war, Kevin Millwood, LaVon Hernandez, the great Mike Hampton, and the famous Denver school system, <laughs> Denny Nagel, and Andy Ashby. And then the first batter for both teams, Dale Murphy, also shows up here. So the the first batters for the Braves slash Rockies, uh, who were with the expansion Rockies in 93, Murphy and also Vinny Castilla. And then the first to have pitched for both teams. Also, four players who were on the 93 Rockies, Armando Reynoso, Jeff Parrott, David Need, and Mark Grant. And that concludes our two-team trivia series. All right, I was planning to end here. Meg has returned to positional power rankings land, but I just got a clutch query result from frequent stat blast consultant Ryan Nelson. Find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. And this must be shared this week. So here we go, a late-breaking stat blast. As a timely treat to mark the end of our season preview series. You may know that Tom Seaver has the record for most opening day starts, 16. You may know that Jack Morris has the record for consecutive opening day starts, 14. But I've got some much more obscure trivia for you here. This stat blast was inspired by listener Alex, who emailed, I was reminded the other day by a fellow Rays fan that Dewan Brazelton was the Devil Rays opening day starter in 2005 against the Blue Jays. Looking into it, the starter for the Blue Jays that day was Roy Halladay. The difference in career fangraphs war between the two is 66.2. I initially thought that this had to be the biggest difference in war between two opening day starters, at least in the modern era, but then I thought about players with super high war totals like Roger Clemens or Randy Johnson. So what is the biggest gap in career war between opening day starters? Well, I can answer that question now, Alex, and a few more to boot. So we have these scheduled opening day starters for this Thursday, and the biggest gaps to date are between Max Scherzer and Sandy Alcantara, that's a gap of 57.1 fangraphs war, and between Zach Greinke and Pablo Lopez. That's a gap of 56.8 fangraphs war. One would assume, given the ages of all involved, that Alcantara and Lopez will narrow those gaps before all is said and done. The smallest gaps between opening day starters this year are between Framber Valdez and Dylan Cease, Luis Castillo and Shane Bieber, and Blake Snell and the aforementioned Heron Marquez. All less than one career fangraphs war. But that wasn't the question. The question was about all-time gaps. So Ryan gave me the data two ways. One is the career war difference between the two opening day starters. The other is the to-date war difference. So the gap between them as of the time 
they started that game. The biggest career war difference ever between opening day starters was the 1989 matchup between the Orioles and the Red Sox, Roger Clemens and Dave Schmidt. That's a difference of 124.1 career Fangraphs pitching war. This is all pitching war, by the way. The gap at that point was only 20.5, but it ended up being about six times bigger than that. After that, it's Roger Clemens versus Gil Heredia of the A's in 1999. That's almost 122 war. Then, sticking with the Red Sox, you have Cy Young versus Charlie Smith of the Senators in 1908, Cy Young versus Jack Coombs of the A's in 1907, Roger Clemens again versus Jeff Supon of the Royals in 2001, Walter Johnson versus Alan Russell of the Red Sox in 1920, Randy Johnson versus Kevin Jarvis of the Padres in 2002, Roger Clemens versus Ken Hill of the Cardinals in 1996, Greg Maddox versus Tony Armas Jr. of the Expos in 2003. I could go on, but you get the point. It's some of the all-time best pitchers versus some not-so-great pitchers. Halliday versus Brazelton, as sizable a mismatch as that was, was only the 110th largest gap in career Vangrass pitching war between opening day starters in the same game. Interestingly, Halliday was also involved in one of the three biggest gaps in to-date war difference. So the top two are Cy Young versus Smith, Cy Young versus Coombs, and then after that, 2003 opening day, Roger Clemens versus Roy Halladay. At the time, of course, Clemens was closing in on the end of his career. Halladay had only fairly recently embarked on his peak. The fourth biggest to-date war difference, by the way, is 1992, Nolan Ryan of the Angels versus Randy Johnson of the Mariners. Nolan Ryan was then almost 96 war ahead of Randy Johnson, but of course, Randy Johnson ended up with more war than Nolan Ryan. So you never know. If you want to know the smallest gaps in career war between opening day starters, it's a tie at .1 war between Albie Lopez for Tampa Bay in 2001 versus Steve Paris for the Blue Jays and Edinson Volquez for the Reds in 2013 versus John Neese of the Mets. Exciting stuff. I'll link to the spreadsheet so you can sort through it to your heart's content. But a couple other questions I wanted to answer. First, how could you not wonder this? Who are the worst pitchers ever to get an opening day start in terms of career pitching war? Well, there are six career sub-replacement level pitchers who have gotten opening day starts. From highest to lowest war, Carlos Reyes for the 96 A's, Jack Burley for the 1933 Phillies, Eddie Yeris for the 1920 Boston Braves, Rafael Roque for the 1999 Brewers, Duan Brazelton for the 2005 Devil Race, and the lowest of all time, lowest in terms of career war at negative 1.6 and also lowest in to-date war at negative 2.0, Phil Ortega for the 1965 Senators. I was wondering what the deal with Phil Ortega was. He was 25. He had joined the Senators the previous December in a big trade with the Dodgers for Frank Howard. Pete Rickert, who was also in that trade and also 25, turned out to be the best pitcher on the team. He led the 65 Senators pitchers in war and was an all-star, but he had been in the minors for most of 1964. And the Senators were bad in 64, as they often were, as the saying went, first in war, first in peace, last in the American League. The 64 Senators were actually only second to last in the American League, but they still lost 100 games. And their best pitcher that year and their opening day starter in 1964 was Claude Osteen, who went to the Dodgers in that same deal that brought Ortega back. And so there just weren't a lot of great candidates. So Phil Ortega, he's your guy. Of course, 
before the official first pitch of that game, President Lyndon Johnson, threw out the ceremonial first pitch, and according to one account, Johnson, a former first baseman on the Johnson City, Texas high school team, was said to have gotten in a little secret practice for his inaugural throw from the first base presidential box. He took a few quiet warm-up throws in a secluded spot on the White House grounds recently. Last year, the right-handed chief executive let fly with a wobbly blooper pitch, which apparently did not satisfy him. Phil Ortega's pitches probably did not satisfy the senators. He gave up five earned over five innings, and the senators lost to the Red Sox 7-2. Now, last thing, if we're figuring out the worst starters ever to get an opening day start, then we have to figure out the best starters never to get an opening day start. And Ryan did that, too. The best starter by career fangrass pitching war never to have started an opening day. Mordecai Three Finger Brown, the legend. And I believe the only Hall of Fame pitcher, at least that I'm seeing toward the top of this list, who did not get an opening day start. Excluding, of course, pitchers who were primarily relievers. If you just go by career pitching war, Mariano Rivera is third. Ron Reed, Goose Gossage, Hoyt Wilhelm, etc. But if we stick with starters, it's Mordecai Brown, Mike Garcia, Adonis Terry, Rudy May, Danny Darwin, Doyle Alexander, Charlie Liebrandt, Fritz Peterson, Vern Law, Gio Gonzalez, and the late Bill Hands, former Effectively Wild guest. So how did Mordecai Three Finger Brown become, I believe, the only Hall of Fame starter not to have started an opening day? Well, his career got started a little late, but beginning with his first season and then continuing through 1912, which was sort of the end of his peak in his mid-30s, here are the starters who got the starts ahead of him. Clarence Curry, Jake Weimer, Carl Lundgren twice, Orville Overall four times, great name and very good pitcher, Ed Royalbach, and finally in 1912 for the Cubs, King Cole. And that was the one I had trouble understanding. How did Three Finger Brown not get the start over King Cole? Well, some people were wondering that at the time. The Cincinnati Inquirer said, Frank Chance will present his strongest front, except that the great three-fingered artist Mordecai Brown is not to pitch. King Cole will be on the mound, and he is not only a clever worker, but a lucky one. He has usually been successful against the Reds, but I don't know if it was his success against the Reds that got him that start. According to the Cincinnati Post, manager Chance decided on King Cole several days ago, Cole got into shape early this season, and has pitched such fine ball and exhibition games, manager Chance figured he would have the best chance to win the big game of the season, the opener. Another story noted that King Cole was in the best shape of all the Cub twirlers. Not everyone was in good shape when the season started in those days. So Mordecai Brown missed a chance at a possible opening day assignment that season, and I guess he never got another, although he did get a save on opening day in 1908. King Cole, by the way, got rocked, gave up five earned over three and two-thirds, and the Cubs lost 10-6. to That's good trivia for you, though. And lastly, the best position players never to have gotten a start on opening day? Well, unsurprisingly, there aren't a lot of great ones. And Ryan cautioned me, pre-1901, take some of this data with a grain of salt. Some info may be missing. The all-time leader in career war among position players who never got a start on opening day is Chris Stewart, a favorite of mine during his career. Nine career war from 2006 to 2018, and you gotta figure it would be a backup catcher and a guy who had good framing stats. So there's some good trivia for you too. Lots of catchers and utility guys on this list, as you might expect. Bill Salkeld, Jim Dwyer, Doc Crandall, Pinky Hargrave, William Fisher, Todd Pratt, Frank Brower, Rob Makoviak. I will link to all of this. The active leaders among non-pitchers who haven't started on opening day. Adley Rutschman, John Birdie, Michael Harris II, Santiago Espinal, Brett Phillips, Johan Camargo, Reese McGuire. 
Taylor Ward. Lots of those guys will no longer be on that list at the end of this week. All right, that will do it for today. As you have heard, we are still accepting submissions for an Effectively Wild theme song. We were hoping to decide on one by the end of this month, but frankly, they're still rolling in and we're still really enjoying them. So as long as they keep coming, we'll keep playing them. Today's intro theme was submitted by Benny, who is part of a small comedy band called A Million Shetland Ponies based out of New York. The intro song you heard was the pedantic version. The outro song you're about to hear is the horny version. So stay tuned. Before I leave you with that, I will give you two little reading recommendations. The first comes from a former Atlanta Braves executive, Noah Woodward, whom I've mentioned before. He used to write for me at Baseball Prospectus, and now he has a great substack called The Advanced Scout. I've mentioned it a few times this spring, but his most recent edition was about the return of the changeup, but a different kind of changeup, and I was not really aware of this. He points out that a bunch of pitchers have been dabbling in changeups this spring. Well, that in itself is not notable. There are always pitchers dabbling in some sort of pitch type in spring, but changeups seem to be a common theme. Justin Verlander, Paul Blackburn, Michael Kopech, Logan Gilbert, Matthew Boyd, and Noah points out that there are a few reasons why it might make sense to add or perfect a changeup now more than before. Hitters are seeing a ton of spin these days, lots of breaking balls, and a changeup can be a great complement to breaking balls, might break in a different direction. Also, there's another sticky stuff crackdown going on, and some changeups thrive without spin and sticky stuff, so even better, the problem is that changeups historically have been hard to throw. As Noah writes, while four-seam fastballs require a pitcher to get behind the ball at release and breaking balls are produced by movement through or around the outside of the ball, a traditional changeup turns over the hand through the inside of the ball. For pitchers who don't already pronate on another pitch, most any pitcher who doesn't throw a heavy sinker, that action can be awkward. So it's hard to perfect that arm action and also to camouflage it. But here's the development I wasn't aware of. There's a new way to throw changeups using seam-shifted wake. So here's Matthew Boyd, who's been a big driveline guy. He said, so I throw a changeup just like a slider now, but using essentially the smooth part of the baseball to create no drag on one side, but seam is on the other side. And because of that, I get more movement than I did before. But the pattern of how my wrist is moving is like the other pitches. So it allows for the other pitches to be more consistent. We've talked about seam shifted wake before. This is the concept that explains how the seam orientation of a baseball can affect how symmetrical its wake is. And if it has an asymmetrical wake, that can create additional movement. So this is a recently discovered and named concept in baseball physics and pitch design to explain and predict how pitches will move and to cause them to move that way. See episode 1648 for more. So now, harnessing this force, a pitcher can add that sinking, fading movement to a changeup without pronating. Logan Webb, who Boyd overlapped with briefly last year in San Francisco, is another guy who's doing this. Brian Bannister, the VP of Pitching Development in San Francisco, is a big seam-shifted weight guy. Former Giants executive Scott Harris is now the GM in Detroit. So really, people only started talking about seam-shifted wake a few years ago, and now more and more pitchers per season are using it to throw an age-old pitch, a changeup, in a new more easily repeatable and disguisable way. I find that fascinating because of the new technology and data available. We've seen old standbys like the four-seam fastball thrown in different locations, more often high instead of low. We've seen some pitches like sliders thrown much more often. We've seen new pitches or at least variants of pitches that are now 
separated by pitch classification algorithms like the sweeper, and now we're seeing change-ups learned and taught in a different way. What will they think of and throw next? And how will the hitters keep up? I'll link to that for more. And also, let me plug another Rob Maines piece at Baseball Prospectus. On the Padres preview last week, we brought up the new Forbes franchise valuations, and Rob put his business background to use in evaluating them. The headline is that franchise values increased by 11.8% last year, the median team appreciated by 8.9%, and that's despite some of the uncertainty about local broadcast revenue. But there was also, across the industry, a 4.9% profit margin. Again, Forbes is estimating here. They don't have access to the books, but this is the best we have. And that 4.9% profit margin was in spite of the Mets, the Padres, and the Phillies being in the red from a yearly profit perspective because they spent a lot on their teams. So if you remove those three teams from the equation, then the rest of the teams had a 7.6% profit margin. And as for those big spenders, well, the Mets may have lost an estimated $138 million, Rob writes, but the franchise appreciated in value by a quarter of a billion dollars. Padres' ownership lost $55 million for a team that appreciated by $175 million. That's a good trade-off. The only teams, he notes, whose franchise value appreciation failed to overcome operating losses were the Bally Sports-affected Twins and Reds. And lastly, Rob provided a list of the teams with the highest operating margin in 2022 based on these numbers. That's profits divided by revenue. The Orioles, the Mariners, the Pirates, the Giants, the Rangers, the Guardians, the Red Sox, and the Nationals. The Mariners led the majors in operating profit last year, and yet they didn't spend a ton this winter. Meanwhile, the Orioles are raking it in, the Pirates are raking it in, the Guardians are raking it in. Rob writes, one of the complaints about modern baseball ownership is that everybody makes money reducing the incentive to win. Numbers like those support that thesis. The teams with the highest operating profit margin were, on average, six games under 500. Why spend money to improve when your investment goes up in value every year and throws off a lot of cash as well? Interesting stuff from Rob. Check out the full article. And also, check out Effectively Wild on Patreon, and please support us there at patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Malcolm Sherman Godfrey, Tom Mattern, Nicholas Forbes, probably not of the Forbes magazine Forbeses, Michael Foley, and Quinn Sanchez. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group. You're going to want to get in there before opening day. All of our patrons are welcome. We also do monthly bonus episodes for Patreon supporters. We do playoff live streams. We offer free games. We offer discounts on merch and ad-free fangraphs memberships and much, much more. Check it out. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. If not, you can email us at podcast at fangraphs.com. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. And you can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. You can also find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Shane McKeon and I teamed up to edit and produce today's episode. We will be back in about a day with one more episode before opening day. We've got a fun game planned for you all involving some listener participation. So stay tuned. Please take us out, Benny and a million Shetland ponies. Well, it's moments like these that make you ask, how can you not be horny about baseball? Every take hot and hotter, entwining and abutting, watch them climb big mountain. Nothing's about nothing, every stitch wet with sweat, breaking balls back, dormy on effectively wild, how can you not be horny? When it comes to podcasts, how can you not be horny?